Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Everything House Music and More. And my special guest today is the one and only King of House, Mr. Farley Jackmash the Funk. What's up, King? What's going on, King? How you doing, brother? Man, I'm sitting with the remix, King. I can't do no better. Hey, I I, I appreciate this, Farley. Seriously, man. This is an honor, man. This is, I think, it's going to be very, um, very informative, I should say. It's going to be delightful. <laughs> it's going to be absolutely all delightful. Right, so, so you ready to get into it? Let's go all the way Let's into go. it. So Farley, what year did you first start DJing and how did you get started? Okay. So the distinction that we have to we have to make one is that when did you DJ professionally? Because you got a lot of people who say, um, I started DJing, you know, when I was eight, nine years old. And and people need to cut that, that shit out. Okay. Are you going to beat me or, or can I say what I need to say? No. Because I want to I want to get to the real. point where people can understand and plain out English of what I'm saying. Let's go. So, so you know, by DJing at eight, nine years old, neither was I. But I, I did used to mess with my mother and father's record player. Because this is how I first mixed my first record. Kenny Jam and Jason was on station WDAI. And... Um, there were a few records that my brother had, and so I put the record on the turntable, and I turned the um, phono in between phono and FM, mm -hmm. and so I took the record, and wherever Kenny had his record at, and I didn't have a pitch control, so I would push the record up, and when it caught up to it, it made an airplane sound. And I was like, man, that's cold. And my, my mother came in and said, you busting my speakers because she thought when it went out, that when it canceled out, she thought the speaker was going out. Right. So I had to do it when my mom went to bed if I was going to do it. So I was mixing, I would say, professionally uh, by 79. 79. I had been playing basement parties, playing uh, It's Your Game, Baby. And I would talk like Herb Kent over the microphone in the basement parties. Right. But I didn't start mixing. The distinction. I didn't start mixing to 1979. Mm. That's good. That's good. So during that time, there was a party culture developing with Southside Kids. How did you connect to that culture? Oh, it was pretty rough uh, because you had people before me. Um and at that time, it really wasn't a whole lot going on, and you had to really get yourself into some types of clicks if you were going to be heard. And at the time, um, I would say our, our best DJ uh, was Jesse Saunders. Jesse Saunders, uh, handsome kid, you know, mm -hmm. he was like when people say double threats or triple threat, he was handsome on the turntables. He could play. Mm -hmm. He held mixes. You know, he made them two records uh, make love together. That's wow. why uh, I, he inspired me. And then, of course, listening to Kenny Jason on the radio. Um, but, yeah, you know, getting into that that environment, I, I first started passing out flyers because I was a flyer boy mm -hmm. and I used to pass the flyers out that to the parties Jesse was doing. And the guy that was the promoter told me to carry Jesse's records. Mm. So I used to have to carry that big ass steel crate <laughs> of records that Wayne talks about all the time. Right. And I did steal a few records out of it too. Cause <laughs> you know, I kind of made my record collection off of multiple people because I didn't, I didn't have a job at the time. And my dad told me that, um, either I was going to go to college, uh, get a job or get out. Mm -hmm. And so when he said go to college, he wasn't Pacific enough. I went to the college. Right. I didn't go to no classes. Okay. I was busy passing out flyers to all the parties, and, and that's how I got into it. 
So let, let's backtrack a little bit. What you said, you you took from multiple people. Oh, multiple, records. multiple. So so at this time, like we were all young at that time, we yeah. did crazy stuff. Yes. So the people that you stole from, uh-huh. did you ever talk to them? And be like, listen, I did do that. I'm sorry, and all this other stuff. No, man, because everybody was stealing from each other. <laughs> See, don't get it twisted that I was the only one doing it. Right. And I'm saying this. Uh, I want you people to understand something. I am making my own admission of what I've done. Ain't nobody bust me doing shit. I just want to tell y'all about how we got started. Because people think there was a silver spoon in some of our mouths. And it wasn't. It was a struggle to do what you love to do. Yeah, but everybody wasn't stealing records though, Farley. No, everybody wasn't stealing records in the same way. Okay. So listen to this. And and it doesn't matter how they say it today. (laughs) But again, when Jesse used to get... The crate ready from Wayne. Okay. If they had two parties to do in one night, because I was there, Jesse would hide the records in the closet, and Wayne be like, I don't know where this at. And he come take the crate, and he's missing records when he get to the party. But Jesse had the, the, the records up in Chicago State. Right. So so it wasn't stealing, but he borrowed from but he got them back. <laughs> okay. But I'm not the only one. Trust me, it was a load of us. And I don't want to mention their names, because I'm the king now. You see what I'm saying? Right. See, you two... Can be the king too, maybe one day <laughs> if you can still enough records. But okay, okay, so, back on but, track. But wait, so, wait, wait. Okay. So, so I gotta say this while 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 we there. All right. So with those records, we used to get a magic marker, and we used to color the. So if you ever seen a DJ back at that time who had a record and it was covered up, they lie later and say. I didn't want you to know the record I was playing. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. That's because up under there, if you held the record close to the light, you would see some initials up under the black the, uh, black magic marker. So it it, 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 it was a, it was a fine time. I'm telling you, it, I wouldn't want to do this over to save my life where I came from and how I got into the industry. Okay, okay. So let's go back to the other question we were saying. At that point of connection, what music was popular during that time? And what was your first record purchase for DJing? Ooh, wow. First record, I went to Metro Music. Because uh, my brothers had all the music. I got three older brothers, uh, Herbert Jr., Kevin Sr., and Dean Williams. Okay. And then I got an uncle downstairs with my auntie. And I hold, between the two floors, it was always music around. Um, and so when I, I first bought my first records, they were not disco records, I was in love with Al Green. Mm -hmm. Anything Al Green made, I had to have a copy of it, okay? And so I think probably my my first uh, purchases was uh, Let's Stay Together, I think. Mm. Okay. Uh, Because again, I was doing basement parties and stuff like that. And and here's something that you guys might not know too much about and talked about. It's called slow dancing. So when we talk about being a DJ, most people just want to start with a 4-4. That didn't start with me with a 4-4. What started with me was we wanted to bend the girls' backs and hold the asses in our hand back in the day at the old basement party. So before we get into dance music, um, uh, it was that. And then, you know, you go into uh, the Bee Gees, I Just Want to Be Your Everything. All these songs at that time, that's what I was coming into at that time. And and what year was this, Farley? I don't have a timeline. Whatever year those records came out, I lived at Metro Music. Okay. And I stole records from Metro Music, too. <laughs> Come on, man. I put them under my sleeve, man. <laughs> and I walked out the door with them records. So, you know, here's the thing. 
Um, and you might find it's hard to believe because I started there, but I'm truly a Christian man. And when I say this to you, that the Bible says that God hates a false witness. If we ought to speak about the way that it really was, we ought to speak the truth. So I'm, I'm here to give you the truth. So it may sound a little bit shaky. He a thief. If that's what you want to say, I'm willing to let you have that. But I want to let you know it got greater later. Okay. All right. So you were one of the first DJs from the scene to embrace turntablism, the scratching, the backspinning, and the working of the records. Who taught you and were the crowd's first reaction like you were just playing records was okay with that? Well, here's the thing. Um, I wasn't the first. Derek Northleet at the Copper Box was the first one I ever seen yeah, scratch a record. He was at Nimbus, too. Yes, and he was at Nimbus, yeah. yes. And so when I got into the game and wanted to be in the game, uh, he was also another one of those people who I looked at um, as a DJ and said, man, if if he can do it, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And so Frenchie, uh, DJ Frenchie, uh, Frenchie Baldry, which is Hudson Baldry's brother, uh, let me uh, go into his basement. And from what I had heard from Derek Norfleet, I went down in his basement and I emulated what Derek was doing, which I wasn't that good at. Mm -hmm. It took a long time. When I tell you practice is one of uh, my greatest uh, blessings right. to be able to practice, I like to say that, that DJing is like basketball, okay, or any other sport. DJing is like a sport. Mm -hmm. You have to practice to be good. Right. And so, therefore, my mindset about who's a good DJ and not a good DJ is from the fact of if you could really play your records, not, not just because you could find a breakdown and, and play a song. Mm -hmm. What could you do with the song? What could you do to make the audience go crazy with a record they already been hearing for two or three years? Right. That was the thing that I, I, I was uh, most happy with learning how to do. Okay, so when you, when you started scratching at that time, because it wasn't that popular, especially in the house culture, what was everybody's reaction then? They absolutely loved it. Right. People used to, to stare at the stage when I used to do it because it was this newfangled thing. And not everybody could do it. Right. And see, in our early days, you got to understand everything is new. Everything is new. Nobody's done none of this stuff before that we're doing. And all this is new. So when people hear you do these things to a record, they they stop dancing, not because they don't like it. They mm -hmm. look and go like, how is he doing it? Right. And then after they say, okay, he's done enough of it, they go back to dancing. You don't really do too much where they can't dance to the record. Right. And you get back to it. And then my stuff sounded like an edit anyway. It yeah. was I practiced that much that it sounded like an edit. It wasn't something that was disruptive to the dance floor. It was something that kept the dance floor going. Right. Okay. So what year was your first DJ gig and who hired you and what was the reaction at that time? Ooh. So let me say this. Um, Jesse was DJing at the Hummingbird one day. Okay. And uh, I had been passing out flies and everything. And, uh, and by me being uh, a little bit bigger than Jesse, stronger than Jesse, I gangsted Jesse. <laughs> so I, I went down to the Hummingbird and I was like, hey, dude, give me the headphones. And Al McCormick, again, mm -hmm. uh, is one of the biggest names that has never been interviewed by anybody. He is just everything. God sent 
to this whole thing in Chicago that gave us all our start because he was the one who gave Jesse a start and Jay Minor gave me mine along with that. But getting back to Jesse, I said, Jesse, give me the headphones. And Jesse was like, no, man. He did. I said, man, if you don't move. So I took the headphones and I had um, everybody that get up and boogie. It's a disco record, right? Okay. Uh, and it, it's 132 beats per minute. Mm-hmm. Now, the record I tried to mix this 132 beat per minute record was slide, doom, 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 slide. <laughs> right. Now, we on belt drive turntables, and the fastest that you can get slide to go will be 117 beats per minute. The slowest you could possibly make a 132, 133 beat per minute song on a belt drive turntable is 127. Okay. They don't go together. <laughs> so I played those two records and ran everybody out the club and and you know it may sound like a joke i ran everybody out the club with one mix they looked up at the stage who's this fool right. and um and jesse you know got reprimanded for it because he, he was a coward to me so you know the boss was like i don't know why you let farley play he ain't on the flyer right so shortly after that uh because things move so fast right uh, it's amazing how fast things move. So I then went into Frenchie's basement. And uh, well, before Frenchie, it was uh, Milton Green. Let me get it right, Milton Green. Okay. And so I was in Milton Green's basement, learned how to DJ in probably two months' time. And of course, you keep getting better. But I got to the point where I could mix records together. Okay. As an original member of the Hot Mix 5, your popularity citywide exploded and your platform with it. How did the Hot Mix 5 spot come about for you and why did you feel you got picked for the Hot Mix 5 over I, over the other DJs on the scene that time? Well, out of the people who turned in mixes, it was predominantly white and Hispanic that turned in their mixes. And then on, on the black side, they went to the Copper Box, got, I think, Derek Norfleet. There was another guy from the Copper Box. Uh, it was uh, Jeff Davis from the North Side okay. uh, and a few other guys. But what had ha- what had happened was, um, at the time, I was one of the hottest names on the South Side. And I also had a lot of favor. God blessed me with people who, like Marco Spoon, uh, J. Minor Allen, people who were friends of the radio station. Mm-hmm. And so when they spoke about me, those people pushed my name forward. At the time, it could have been many of people that could have went on the radio because now that everybody's older and they listen back to the mixes and they say, well, Scott Seals wasn't all that good. Mickey wasn't all that good. There was plenty of people who could have matched what the other people did. Right. So we have to look at these things as blessings because, you know, you you qualified to do a job and, and so many other people can do it. But why were we chosen? So there's a group out called the Chosen Few, and and we were the first Chosen Few because we were the few that were chosen to be the Hot Mix Five on the radio. Okay, so I ain't gonna get into that right now, but but the Chosen Few is that's their name. I'm just cracking a joke because we were the few, we were the five that 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 made it to radio. So so at that time, were you Farley Funkin' Keith at that time? No, I was Marvelous Farley. Marvelous Farley. Yeah, when I when I first hit the air. Uh, before before all that, because I'm telling you, so many things move so fast. I was known as Farley the Dancer 
on the scene before I started doing anything I ever did. I was really oh man, just shacking, which <laughs> that word came later, just dancing everywhere. I would go to basement parties. And you remember the thing about you holding up the wall, the party can't get started because you right. hold up the wall. I would always start the parties off and start dancing. So my first name was Farley the Dancer, then uh, Marvelous Farley, and then Farley Keith. Okay. And then after Farley Keith came Farley Funkin' Keith, and then the infamous Jack Mass. Yeah, we're going to get to that a little bit later. Let's do okay, it. Okay, so do you remember the very first record you played in your first mix on the radio? Never. Never. No, that indelible part was for someone else to hear me and say you did this, but for me to remember that, nah. Okay. As a standout member of the Hot Mix 5, when you played a record, people went out to buy it. Did you have a lot of labels pressure and and to play different records at that time? No, I didn't. Um, I pretty much did my thing. Right. Um, But the boss had times when he wanted me to play what radio, well, what the promoters were promoting. Right. Because in the interim, you know, we, we didn't have the green light to just play whatever. Right. Uh, in the beginning, it was, of course, it was a, um, how can I put it? It was, it was a trial. They gave the Hot Mix 5 a trial to see if we could do this on commercial radio and hold a listenership. And when they gave us the, you know, the green light, they couldn't believe the ratings because... Our ratings were bigger than the day parts mm. of, of radio. Uh, and the commercial load actually cost more doing our show than the day part. Mm. During that time, did you know that this Hot Mix 5 thing was going to blow up like it did? No. No, and uh, it was uh, a very touching moment because, uh, you know, you get into doing something so so that you love so much that, you know, you hope that it never dies. And, and this was, has happened for us with house music and DJing that, it's only God's grace that what we were able to do, that we are still doing it today. Okay. So, Farley, you're the king of house music. Yes, sir. Before that genre, house was a culture. Yes. How did house music get its name, in your opinion? Huh, many ways. Uh, and, and what happened was, is that it got solidified through everything going on. So, so this word house is around. And so you say, I DJ in my house. You say, I'm throwing a house party. Okay. Then you got the warehouse. All these things work together later, not knowing that when certain people went to the warehouse, they would chop off the beginning of the word and say house. Okay. Uh, and we already say the word house. And then Leonard Roy says to me one day, I don't know where we were. He said to me, yeah, man, shoot, I'm playing house. Leonard said that to me, and I said, hmm, that's like a confirmation. So I went to the radio, since I'm the, the big radio uh, tycoon, and I turned on BMX, went in, pushed the pot up, and Armando said, what you finna, you're not supposed to talk on the radio, Farley. <laughs> I'm always doing something I ain't supposed to do. Right, right, right. Uh, move out the way, man. <laughs> I play house music, and I said it on BMX. Um and from that point right there, we were already bubbling, saying different things amongst ourselves because I didn't go right then that day, maybe a month later. And um, and we were already having these conversations amongst each other. You know, right, Hur- so- Hurley and I and and uh, and whoever else was around at the time, we were always talking about the 4-4. Right. Because 4-4 was before house, and right. I named it 4-4. And then 
after four four dance music. It was dance music four four dance music four four. We in New York City and all the seminars and everything, and they wouldn't give us no room on anything right. on house. And if you don't mind, I know you're the one answering the questions, Maurice. But let me say this again. Sometimes it takes somebody very radical to make a difference in an industry. Right. When you look in a dictionary for the word radical, you'll find me next to it. <laughs> and it's the reason why. So if I could get Julian Perez to be here, Rocky Jones to be in the room, and some of the people who won't be biased to what I'm saying, when I used to go to the seminar in New York, how they found out about the word house music was, we, they had a panel discussion. And you got six people at the at the on on a, on a panel, and and if anybody said, well, you know what, I just left my house. As soon as they would say the word house, mm-hmm. I would jump up in the room and scream. Nobody even knew where I was in these years. I scream at the top of my voice. He said house. He said y'all. Did y'all hear what he said? Mm-hmm. He he said house. Right. I was an idiot. Do you understand? I was an absolute idiot. You say, are you still one? <laughs> no, I was the idiot that went to the seminars. And Scream House. When I met Bruce Forrest, uh, Bruce Forrest, I told him the same story. Uh, he was at the seminar because he was on the panel. Right. Uh, he was mixing the biggest pop acts in um, in some rock, act, not rock, but what kind of music was he doing? Um, punk, punk music. Okay. All the stuff. And Bruce was with our, our biggest fan that played the music in New York at Brighter Days that broke house music in New York. Okay. So at that time, you said Leonard told you about house. So did you ever ask Leonard where did he get that from? No, I, I didn't ask Leonard where he got it from. Um, uh, Cause at the time we were, you know, we just budding DJs right. and, you know, we just laughing and joking with each other. <laughs> Leonard never was on my level, but, <laughs> but you know, you have friends, you, you may be the big ty- tycoon or whatever, but you still got friends. You're a regular right. person. And so I never put myself on that pedestal. Well, it sounded like it. But but I just, I kept up with everybody. Everybody was somebody to me. That's why we kicked it. We kicked it back in the day. And so when Leonard was talking about what he was saying. Um, but he had to get it from somewhere. Well, I know he didn't pull it out of thin air. That's for sure. Right. But, but it still wasn't a concern of mine where he got it from. I just know that it fit. Right. And when it fit, I went like, yeah, okay. house music. So the distinction, which you probably asked me the question um, of old music versus new. Did you have a question for that? No, not yet. We, we didn't get there yet. We was just tr- okay. trying to figure out I where the house jump music ahead from. Of you. So did you ever go to the warehouse? Yes, I did. And what was your thoughts about that? Jesse invited me to the warehouse. And so these were the early days before hetero, most heterosexuals. Right knew how to see gay people enjoying themselves and having fun. And so it just wasn't my scene at the time. Um, by me being sexually molested by my brother, um, it took my innocence away uh, in terms, because I didn't like that at all. Right. It happened to me two or three times. So for me to go to a place where it was something that was done to me that I didn't like, and truly I didn't understand, I didn't like the scene. So um, I heard Frankie Mixon, and, and due to the fact that, of me being a rebel uh, in industry, um, the DJs that I was very fond of was the DJs that actually really worked their records. Mm-hmm. So it was not enjoyable to me 
to come down and hear Frank play because Frank wasn't doing nothing with the records. He was just playing from beginning to the end. And some of the mixes were train wrecks. So for me, I wasn't hyped on Knuckles like that. Right. Um, you know, I put it to you like this. Maybe you can understand it like this. Roger Ebert and Cisco cannot enjoy a movie. They can't sit there, eat popcorn, and just watch a movie like everybody else because they are critics because they're in the industry. So other DJs, whether they say it or not, we all critique each other. And that's all we did in it. It wasn't about how this new word came up about shading, shade, and hating. It wasn't that. It was, I am a battle DJ. I'm a DJ to do things with the record. So I can't hear the records the same way everybody else hear them. Right. So, so, that's, so I didn't enjoy the scene, but I went a couple of times. Um, me and Frank met each other, and we kicked it off real good. It did help me with some of my phobia that I had. Um, and, uh, but y'all wasn't great friends at the beginning. Well, we couldn't because we just right. met each other. Right, right, um, right. And uh, and he's like, "Who's this kid, Farley Keith?" Because I'm I'm younger than him. How old, how old would Frank be today? Uh, that's a good question. I think Frank be about sixty six, wouldn't he? Probably so. I'm sixty one. Right. So five years is a huge difference uh, when you become an adult. You know, because you didn't want to take your little brother nowhere with you when your mama said take him. So <laughs> so you got to understand how that goes. Right. But but you know so. The most indelible thing that I got from Frank and that that uh, I will carry forever, it was a song that he played called Walk the Night. Mm -hmm. And I heard him play that down in the warehouse and people went nuts. He turned all the lights out and a guy grabbed me by the waist and started dancing with me and I had to go. <laughs> but I love the fact that that record was... You, people don't really understand us as DJs and producers that... Music sometimes can be life-changing and can take you in another direction in how you feel your own music that you want to play right. and the music you want to make. And that song was a dark song. And from hearing that dark song, I searched for other dark music, too, to try to play that type of uh, that type of style, too. Right, right, right. Because every style was still a style, regardless. Okay. So Frankie had the warehouse and yes. the power plant yes. as he built his legacy. How did the play playground play a part for you? How did the playground play a part for me? Yeah. What do you mean? That was your club. Well, it, in essence, it was Frankie's club. Okay. Uh, Frankie opened the playground up with Jesse. Uh, how the story goes is the promoter, Craig Thompson, and his brother bought the playground, opened the playground up, and at the time, I was still promoting, sending flyers out, and DJing. Uh, the warehouse had closed and Frank didn't have a home. Okay. So the playground, I was told, was supposed to be mine. But he gave it to Knuckles thinking that Knuckles was going to carry the club. So he gave the club to Knuckles. And four months later, the place started emptying out. Mm. So he called me and said, Farley, how would you like to DJ at the playground? Well, me who, me, me being me, I, inside, I want to say, yeah, I'm on my way. Right. But I was like, man, fuck you, man. <laughs> so I was like into negotiation because one thing about Frankie that Frankie eclipsed Ronnie, me, and some of the other guys in the early days was Frankie was about his paper. Mm -hmm. Frankie did not DJ unless he got real paper. So I said, before I come to the playground, 
they might have got me at a cheaper rate. But since you had Knuckles there, and I know the people I'm going to bring there, you're going to have to pay me a fee. I don't want to say how much it was because it was quite astronomical. Right. Uh, at you that got time. To pay at that time. Give us a number, just a ballpark, so we know yeah, at that time. Yeah. So, so <laughs> the line, needless to say, when I took the job, the line was around both corners, okay? Right. And it stayed that way for a year and a half. Mm. Um, again, I'm the guy that's on the radio playing to millions of people every weekend, and Frank is the guy that's DJing in the warehouse before the playground. Right. And, you know, the warehouse was a little place that only hold, what, 150 people soaking wet? I think about 300, he said. Who? You know, nah, please don't hold on 300. Where? <laughs> it was a double storefront. <laughs> it may be 150. Well, I give them 300. Okay. I give them 300. But it was, a, it was a small, quaint little club, which uh, I hope they are able to landmark now. Right. Well, Wayne, this is something Wayne Williams wanted me to tell you, man, that he that said he loves that, me. He said to tell he loves you me that not. you were you actually were are one of the underrated persons in this house culture. And when they talk when talking about house, he said you don't get mentioned enough about that because you are one of the pioneers of this. And he wanted me to make sure you, you know. You I'm glad know. Wayne said that because see, he here's that. the thing. It's not that I'm not mentioned. This started real early in my in my career. I am very loud, rambocious from the time of my inception of DJing. Right. And when I tell you that DJing is like a sport, the guys on the court talk shit to each other, and you have to bag yourself up. DJs that 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 perform this type of way, you ain't gonna be the most liked person. Right. And I know I wasn't the most liked person, and I and I don't. I don't care about that. What I cared about was I wanted to further this thing called house music. Okay. I wanted people to be, it's like I'm like a, a damn coach that don't need to be coaching, okay? <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I wanted everybody to be at their greatest and at their best. Right. Tony Batoy, uh, through a battle of the DJs, okay? Now, I want you to get this, so because this, this should, should clarify some things for you. Okay. Tony Batoy... Through the battle of the DJs at Rainbow, the DJs he hired from Chicago was me, right. Steve Hurley, and I don't even know who the other guy was. New York, he brought Izzy in, um, and he brought Jam Master, uh, Jay, not Jam Master, Jay, um, Jazzy J in. These are the top DJs in New York City, right? Right. right. Tony Batoy did not hire Wayne Williams. <laughs> he didn't hire... He didn't hire Jesse Saunders. He didn't hire Frankie Knuckles. Why do you think he grabbed the best he could grab to have New York versus Chicago? Okay. When I tell you, when you are at the top of your game, you will not be the most well-loved. LeBron James, the players in the league don't like LeBron James, but he's the number one scorer in the league um, of all time. This goes along with that territory. Okay. So black gay culture has always been a foundation in house culture. In the early years, you were very re resistant of, of that influence. And looking back, how do you feel that it helped or hurt the genre of house? Well, here's that other distinction. Um, you got black kids, some black kids at the time from the South Side, who heard about house music but didn't want to gravitate to it because they said that's that gay music. I don't want. I don't have nothing to do with that. Right. 
We used to hear this worldwide different places we used to go to where people thought that the music, uh, because gay people danced to it. But the craziest part about it is House started with heterosexuals. Mm-hmm. House did not start in the gay club. It, the culture and the the, the disco music right. that was played, the derivative, like, as I said on Unsung when I was on there, I call house music the bastard child of house uh, of disco. disco. Right. Okay, you can look it up. It's the reason why I said that because we all know where it derived from. We know house came out of disco, right? And so our very first records, all of them were uh, basslines that were stole from disco from, records, from old disco records. Right. Okay, um, the only you know some notes were changed around in it was music is the key. Uh, some people argue it was John Roker, but at the same time. Uh, it wasn't in the same key, and Hurley came up with something unique. Whether he felt that that old record or whatever he did, that's beside the point. It was an original bass line. Right. Um, Jamie Principal, when he put his record out, he stole, I mean, it damn near sound note for note what he took, but he put different lyrics on top, uh, and he puts added some other instruments to it. Right. So to me... Uh, Jamie's is an original composition to me, influenced by all what feels good by Electra. Mm-hmm. Maybe Hurley's is, you know, uh, it is original and it, it feels like John Roker, but it was original because it all wasn't right. note for note. So, in your opinion, mm-hmm. what was the very first house record? My opinion, the very first house record. Hmm. I love taking this pause because I've seen everybody else do it. And I guess I just want to take a pause too. Uh, wow. Because we don't have a uh, a timeline. Correct. Between uh, Hurley and Chip. Okay. Uh, and the same thing with Jamie. I would, I would like to say today, all three of them are. Because nobody has a definitive date on when the very first record came out. Everybody's up in the air, throwing it up in the air, all mine for, until you show me an actual date. Nobody knows. It's okay not to know. It's okay not to know. So Jesse's out of the equation? That'd be Jesse Saunders on and on. So would you consider Vince Lawrence Fantasy or either Fast Cars one of the first house records? I like how you still, you know, you put Fast Cars... Fast Cars a piece of shit. Okay. Uh, but Fantasy... Wait, wait. So you never played Fast Car? If I did, maybe two times. I didn't like it. Okay. I, you know, it's, it's this guy who says, hated it. What was that? That's from... I, can't, uh, I just... In Living Color. In Living... Hated it. I couldn't stand it. So, uh, but, but his record, Fantasy... Right. We played the cover off that record, okay? Right. And to me, Fantasy definitely was before Hurley and definitely was before... Um, Jesse. Uh, uh, Jesse, which was Jesse saying He sang yeah, he on Fantasy. Right. But, but it's still Vince and him together and Rachel. Right. All three of them on that one record. Right. But your first release was on your own house records. Yes. Can you recall what was your intention and what was your first release? On house records. My intentions can only be what the name of the label was. My yeah. record label is called House Records. I mean, the distinction is there. 
It's the very first house music label in the entire world. Mm. Okay. Okay. Others can claim it, but but that record came out and said house records. How could you? Now, what, who, where's who, the mystique in that? You know what I mean. Who distributed that record for you? At the time, Larry Thieven, I mean Larry Sherman, <laughs> uh, and then uh, Rocky uh, did some. You know, he released it as well. Okay. So, do you remember your process in making that first record and pressing it? Yeah, yeah, and and, and that's something I'm gonna bring up too, uh, because we all about truth. You know what I'm saying? We all about truth, right? Now we are. So. Uh, it ain't no now since I said that first word. Um, so the process was I went into the studio and uh, it, the studio was, um, what's that guy's name? Mark Marcharello Studio. It was like a 16-track studio. In the same studio, we got Chip in the same studio. We got Hurley with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a couple other people who have claimed to be in there with me at the same time as well. But it was a community studio at this point where once you find out this is the studio where you can make what we call this house, and I'm playing it on the radio. It's no secret that house music is out because I'm playing it all over the radio. Right. And so everybody wants to get in who's in the crew, who we all hung out with. And uh, and so the process was I brought a Lynn drum machine into the studio. I had an 808 in there. and uh, well, Vince says that was his equipment that you brought in. See, that's why Hurley said in his interview, Farley made more money than me, and he bought a Lynn drum machine. <laughs> so, so, so I'm so glad you said that because, see, folks cannot get their lies together. Uh, Hurley said something, and, and, and um, I really love what he said. If I can't definitively say the truth of whatever it is that I'm speaking about, I will just omit it, mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not pleading the fifth. I would just omit it because either I'm just that fucking old and can't remember or, you know, I just, I didn't hold on to it. That's just the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I remember that. I bought my own drum machine because my mama thought I was crazy for spending $2,400 on a drum machine. Okay. Okay. And then the 808, uh, I had my own 808. That was my first drum machine. And so I put those two things together in my first record I came out with was uh, all shucks. Right. Then I came out with the beat tracks later, uh, funking with the drums. And now, then stay there with funking with the drums now. Now, who was in the studio with you at the time making funking with the drums? Uh, I believe Chip was there. Okay. And, because um, that's so funny because I think he was even recording Time to Jack at that time. Uh, we were both in the same studio. Was Vince Lawrence in the studio with you at that time? No. No, no hmm. Vince in the studio with me. I would remember sure that. that. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, me and Vince got together later on when we did Love Can't Turn Around. Right, right, right. Um, okay. Given that experience, why do you think Larry Sherman and Rocky Jones were able to get such a, a hold of the business of house music when most of the early DJs pressed their own records first? Oh, well, what happened was, as Jesse eloquently put it, his mother gave him the money to press his first records. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like the young kids today, they go into a studio, but they have no distribution and they, they don't they don't know the, the, the business of releasing records, anything. I didn't know it. I didn't come into to, to this thing knowing um, how to release a record. Right. I didn't know that I needed a lawyer. I didn't know all these different things, which most people that's in the business will say the same thing I'm saying. 
They didn't know. Hurley didn't know. Nobody knew. Um, and getting with Rocky, Rocky really didn't have the experience, but mm, here's a white man with some money. Black kids on the South Side. He knew how to convince us that he knew more than we knew. Right. Larry Sherman got the pressing plant. His influence of having a pressing plant right. where he could press up, you know, any amount of records he, to infinity what he wanted to press. Right. We met him and, and we go like, man, let's do some work with Larry, you know. Right. So, you know, uh, later on, we everybody got better with it, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody so, got better. So at that time, did you school anybody that was coming up like, listen, this is how the music industry is, the record business? Don't do this or don't do that. No, I didn't. Um, because at the time, and, and, and like I said, I'm all about truth. I was too much into myself at that time. Right. Um, but I helped everybody. This is the thing. Uh, Ralphie Rosario, his first album, EP, I produced that. Steve Hurley's first record, uh, uh, what is it? Music is the key. key. I produced that. Steve was in the studio singing the song. It wasn't his decision to do this. He was in the, we, he, he brought Keith Nunley with him. Right. And Steve was in there trying to sing the song. How the rap got on the song is because I stood up and said, I can't take this no more. What did we bring Keith here for? Right. Keith was supposed to be here to sing the song. He sound like Colonel Abrams. Right. And see, that's why so, uh, the mix-up is, is that could... Music is the answer actually be the first house record because, watch this, because I'm here to tell the truth. We were emulating Colonel Abrams. Right. What, why do you think Keith, sound, Keith, Keith had never released a record before? He could sing, but he was trying to find his voice who he was going to sound like. Right. So he picked Colonel Abrams. So, you know, you guys can weigh that if you want to weigh it, but... But no, so I told Steve, please come out to the studio. I'm producing your song, right? right? We were great friends at the time. I said, come out of the studio. Let Keith sing the song. Keith went in and started singing the song in falsetto. Mm-hmm. I said, no, come down an octave. And he hit it right on the knob to sound like Colonel. And that's history. Wow. Okay. So let's go into this. How did the Jack Master title come about? The Jack Master title came because Steve... Um, the brain that he is, he came up with saying that he thought that would be a great name, Jack Master, for himself. So it would have been Steve Jack Master Hurley. So when Steve told me this, I hit the roof because me and him were best friends at the time. <laughs> right. We lived together. We were the salt and pepper. Right. Me the blackie, him the light boy. <laughs> and we kicked it. I used to, by me being, you know, his senior um, he followed my lead on mostly everything because I had already did everything by the time he came around. Right. So I was busy feeding him stuff to to do out in the industry, uh, things to do, um, and be his big brother in the business. So right. I thought we had a friendship that could never be broken. Um, but then there's things that happen um, along the way. Like, for instance, me helping them get on the radio. So I helped him get on the radio. So was that jealousy or just competition-wise, friendly competition? It started as competition-wise, because that's the better word to use until I get this point. And that is that um, when Steve first got on the radio, uh, I told him this statement. I said, now listen, you know you can't beat me, DJ. I know you can't beat me, DJ. 
But people have been listening to Farley since we got on the radio. And when you come on the air, you're going to be a breath of fresh air, even though you we still playing the same records that I'm playing. Right. So you really ain't doing anything different, but they just want to hear somebody else's name for a change. But I asked him to do me one favor, and this is where this all started. I said, I'm putting you on the radio, but don't get big-headed with me. Mm -hmm. I just He's my friend. Right. And as my friend, we were being honest with each other. And I just asked him, please don't get... What's that record by Gene Cotton? Don't let it go to your head, right. no. And it went to his head. So from <laughs> so so from that, I've always been an edgy type of guy. Right. And so I saw it coming, and I, you know, so that started some jealousy from my end because um, I thought that when I brought him on, that he understood not that I had to always be the man. Right. Not that it's just that in our friendship. Can we keep the same ideas that we had when we entered into this friendship? Right, right, right. This friendship that we built that only me and him know we got secrets in this world that nobody don't know. Things nobody can even comprehend. That's how close we were. And that's like you and anybody that's your best friend. They don't know really know everything right. about you and your best friend. Right. They just know you're friends. They just think we just kick it. No, right, right, right. me and Steve was deep. And so we did a lot of stuff. We practiced together. We People work together. We practice together. We made each other better. Um, and so it was rough to hear him say that. Um, and then just to show you uh, that I'm not lying about if I'm the better DJ, I want every battle of the DJs I was in and Steve <laughs> was in them too. So, I mean, like, so I'm just being honest. Can we all be honest? All right. So so stay there. So including Steve, mm -hmm. Ferris Thomas, DJ Lil John, Leonard Remix Roy, and others, who do you feel like was your closest threat? Derek Gray. He died. Oh, wow. Derek Gray was a legend. And I hope you do get a chance to interview Leonard Roy. I think if we were to say one, two, three, I would say, of course, myself. Wait a minute, make sure you see my eyes when I say that. <laughs> and then after me came, um, it was close between Leonard Roy and Derek Gray. Okay. And I would have to say Derek Gray, and then I say Leonard Roy, then I say Hurley. But let me say this, uh, is I love to watch Stephen A talk about his top five in basketball. Right. Then I'd have to say Lil John. Okay. Okay. Now, morphing just a few years later, okay? Right. right. Because you got to understand, there's a timeline to this because in comes Bad Boy Bill. Right. In comes Mike Hitman Wilson. Right. Here comes the next generation of DJs who took whatever it was we were doing and told us, go to bed, right. go to sleep. It was lights out when them kids came on and re realized we were kids when we came into it and they were the kids that came up after us. Right. Never, never uh, under underestimate a kid. Please don't. Because that's where the true raw talent is. Right. So as right now, who does Farley, Jack Master Funk, like as a DJ? Give me three people that you like. I love listening to this person. You know, I like this person's style, whatever. It can be past or present, but just three that Farley Keith likes to listen to. Um, Mike Dunn, for sure. Okay. Um, Mike carries the tradition, and he's also taking it forward at the same time. Right. 
He has a lot of energy when he plays, and you can't predict what he's going to play either. So I'm always glad to uh, to listen to Mike. Okay. Um, Louis Vega. I like to listen to Louis play. Um, he's not as quite as skilled as Mike is, but musically, you got those guys who, as uh, uh, Skip say, Hurley's boy Skip, who pushed the envelope. DJ Skip. Right. DJ Skip. Right. The, 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 the brother, the brother pushes the envelope. Okay. Um, he breaks new music. He's ahead of the curve that that people want to follow some of the things that he make. Right. Um, and number three. And then uh, she, he didn't want me to elaborate Louis too much more on it. Okay? No, I'm just joking. I just figured <laughs> we throw that in there. Um, and then for antics, listening. No, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. And then I'm going to tell you who, who that was. Uh, Kenny Carpenter. Okay. I've been loving Kenny Carpenter since our days in England, and, and he, he was just absolutely phenomenal. Okay. But I was going to say Joe Cassell for, for the antics. Okay. Um, he plays some darn good music, and, uh, and he's very entertaining. Nice. Okay. So how do you feel Ron Hardy changed the scene when he gained popularity? And that's just it, when he gained popularity. Okay, so... Uh, how I met Ron was because I was on a circuit as the Hot Mix 5 and I wasn't spending as much time at the playground. Right. Um, the owners were getting leery because they're going like, you know, you I let Hurley take my place what, when I wasn't there. And then Jesse. You let Hurley take your place? I let. Okay. The playground mine, baby. That's why my street sign says the king of house music. <laughs> I think this thing, can y'all see it? <laughs> it's down. <laughs> it's down on 14th Street, baby. Okay. okay. There's only two people in the city. You got Frankie Knuckles, the Godfather House, and Farley Jack Master Funk, the King of House, who only has titles to uh their name in the world and got street signs in the world. So you you do what you want to do with that. Um <laughs> but what was your question again? Because you you lost me for a How second. do you feel like Ron Hardy changed the scene when he okay. gained his popularity? So now this is this is this is a hilarious story. So the owners of the playground said uh you know Farley you you on the road all throughout the city, all throughout Illinois with the Hot Mix Five touring doing everything. So they had Ron come down there, and they said, well, he, he's a guy we're interviewing to let him see if he wants to play at the playground. So he comes in and tells me he's from Prelude Records. And he comes in the DJ booth, hey, Farley, honey, how you doing? I was like, okay, cool. He said, I'm from Prelude Records. I said, okay. He says, I've been hearing so much noise about what you can do. Show me what you can do. Can, can you please do that? Right. And I, he said, I had heard that you did something with uh, – Sharon Brown, let me work on you. I heard those were tape edits. I said, dude. You specialize in love, right? I specialize yeah. in love. I said, dude, you cracking me up. I said, I don't do tape edits, bro. I do it live at the party. So when people say scratching and backtracking and doing all that, right. people didn't like, those were the people who actually were pause button and cutting tape because they couldn't do what we did. And I say we because I could do it. Hurley could do it. You could do it, Mo. When right. you came up, you learned how to do it. it you guys furthered what we did, too. Right. All you guys furthered. You you and Hula, and y'all took our stuff to another level, too. Right. So it, it was me, the second generation was able to do that. Right. But uh, Ron came in, and uh, 
And it was hilarious. He 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 juked me on that, telling me that he was from Prelude. <laughs> and then when I went on the road and came back early, back to the club one Saturday, it was Ronnie DJ. And I, I went in the booth and I was like, hey, man, I thought you was from Prelude Records. He's like, oh, boy. And I was like, okay, they slicked me. <laughs> okay, so then Hurley got Fridays and Ron was on Saturday. Right. And the thing about Ronnie was, Ronnie added some songs to the game that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. So when I walked into the playground one day, Ronnie was playing Jungle DJ. Mm -hmm. I had never, ever, ever, ever heard that record So before. he was the first one you heard playing that? The very first one I ever heard play that. Okay. And the, it was a tape edit. And the crowd was climbing the walls in the joint off that song. Now, what year was this? Ooh, that had to be maybe 84, okay. maybe? Okay. Maybe 84. Yeah, and and that's when we had like two dollar parties, Ron right. Hardy two dollar parties, and because they what they were trying to do was after I left, they were trying to because see he couldn't hold a crowd either. So after I left, they started having two dollar parties so that mm. they could fill the joint up. Um, and oddly enough, I know people are tripping about two dollars to get the party, but yeah, up until a certain time, so you had to get right. in before ten. Right. So the trickery of the promoter was the party. Starts at nine o'clock, and you have from nine to ten o'clock to get in for two dollars. Right, right. They didn't start letting people in the place to nine fifty. Right. Now people out there cussing, yelling, talking about, "Hey man, I'm here, man. Right. What you mean you gonna let me in for two dollars? I was here on time." And so that's how they got the playground to be packed again. Doing so, two Ron can never parts. hold and hold a crowd there all night long. No, he could not. No, well, let me let me explain. When he first got there, he couldn't. Okay. Because he was so different. Right. See, if you came to the playground by being my house, I had the people train on right. the music that I played. Right. So now they don't see me in the booth, and I'm being replaced by somebody. Nobody didn't know Ron Hardy's name like, like that right. to come in the club and say, hey, Ron Hardy's playing. Now, you might have got away with it if it was Ferris or something, right. but, but not Ron Hardy. Okay. So Ron Hardy built and then changed the playground right. because it filtered out a whole lot of people that didn't like that style of music. Right. And then also he brought more gays into the into the party when he came, obviously him being gay and right. him having a, a a gay audience. Then they started coming more to the playground. So okay. he started losing a whole lot of people. Right. Okay, so during the years of 1986 to 1989, Chicago house music business became a bit of a wild, wild west with the records being taken and signed to multiple labels and things like that. Can you talk about this time and your contribution to the madness? Well, let me start with, with the things that I had no business doing. Okay. There's a record that Nick Nonstop made, and they used to bring the records. Everybody brought, listen to this. Everybody brought their records to me on BMX or WGCI when I was on the radio. I am uh, the emancipator. Of pro Wait a minute, little Richard <laughs> came out for a minute. Um, I'm the one who broke everybody's music, right? So if they brought it to me, I played it on the radio. Well, I don't really know the story of Nick Nonstop, but I do know that when the record came, um, uh, it wasn't a record, uh, uh, it was a tape going around. I played the tape and, and Nick Nonstop, uh, I didn't know him personally, but he didn't put the record out. Right. So the real, and, and here's, here's the distinction. Here's, here's, here's where we run into an extreme problem because... By me going to New York City and hanging out, you know, 
with, you know, Run DMC and all them people that I hung out with. Right. And Ice T and, you know, from LA. The problem came, I picked up their slang. Okay. There is a word in their slang called biting. At that time, when that record came out, biting was a huge word to use in industry. So I went in the studio and I did a, what's it called, Mo? A remake, a rendition of Jack My Body. So you, you didn't take the actual cassette that he had? No, you I redid I, everything. I redid everything and even used my own bass line and okay. samples and everything else. So instead of using the proper language and saying, I did a remake of that record, I said, I bit it. So it sticks to this day that Farley's a thief because he bit this record. I was the one who said I bit the record. Wrong language. But at the same time that I say that, I went to Nick nonstop and I asked him to forgive me for biting his record, well, stealing I, this record. I, I, I can play advocate here. I don't think you remade it. You took it because if you would have remade it, you would have put Nick nonstop. Featuring Farley or whatever like that. Well, see, that's another distinction. And the other distinction is, is that people think because we were in the industry, we knew how to take care of our paperwork. Right. That's not true. That is true. I did I did not know how to take care of my paperwork to give people proper credit on the label because that record came out on Dance Mania Records. Right. It didn't come out on house records. So the responsibility lies with the person who released the song. Okay? <laughs> so you just you just passing the buck on, huh? Well, you I still got to take accountability for I that. Can, I can yeah. take that accountability when yeah. I learned of it. Right. But I, I have to take accountability, period, because yeah. I did. Let me let me own my shit. Yeah, because we, we, okay. you know, we all know uh, we, we taking something, we taking something. Trust me. Well, well, no, I don't mean it in the same way that you're putting it. I'm saying... Regardless, if I did a crime, the police are coming to the door to arrest me. They don't give a fuck if I knew or not. You okay. see what I'm saying? Right, right, right. So I didn't understand the industry to that to that point. Okay. okay. All right. Um, and uh, and so these things happen throughout the industry right. because um, whoever had the ability to release records and do stuff came temptation. Yeah. And in that temptation, everybody ain't been good. Because like right now, Mo has a few records. Everybody got a few records. Even Bulu got a record. He got Billy Jackin tracks where he took Billy Ocean and put a kick drum in it. Right. But took the whole record from beginning to yeah. the end and put the record out. And that's his new record. Okay. That's Billy Ocean singing on the song. He didn't sing a word. And I'm not trying to throw Bulu under the bus. I'm explaining to you well, that's industry. That's a lot of people. That's, yeah, that's a lot it's of people. It's industry. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. all. I'm just explaining yeah, yeah. industry. Not Bulu is awesome. I'm just explaining industry. Right. And so, in some senses, uh, some of the stuff that came out in the early days was, was the predecessor to what came later. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, it's just unfortunate that that, that happened. And I have uh, felt like shit about that. And I have, we've been at a party and I... I apologize to the guy two times because uh, uh, people say that uh, some people have said, well, it didn't change his, it wouldn't change his career because no, dude, that would have changed lives because that so record. So what, what was his response? Oh, he, he said he accepted it and I believe he did, but, but if I was him, I would still be mad. You know what I mean? Because this is people, this is history. 
Because it, it could have changed his life. It could have. What what he, he's done. He's done crazy. He's crazy successful at what he does. Right. And so he says, you know what? No, because I was able to do this. God blessed me to do this. Right. But at the same time, God would have added to that, which was yours. That's true. And he would have had all of that. That's all I'm saying. Right, right, right. He would have had all that in, because that record went top seven yeah. on the pop charts. So with influence comes responsibility. Yes, it does. How do you feel you could have impacted the house music business in hindsight? In hindsight, because it's, it's always four eyes, 2020. <laughs> well, one of the things, just as I just spoke of, that, you know, uh, that that Nick's record could have influenced me creating something that may be something like that other than just right. full out just taking the whole idea of the song. Right. Um, and there's other mistakes uh, being made throughout the industry that we all made from the beginning that we would have hired musicians in 2020, yeah. uh, uh, hindsight. We'd have brought in musicians in and... In, in, Allowed them to be a part of our productions. Because yeah. even, excuse me, even to this day, the uh, the guy who plays keyboards in the studio is still not getting the credit that he feels he deserves because we might hum a bass line to the keyboard player. He plays it. Uh, sometimes they play exactly what you want. Sometimes they don't. Right. But what happens when they don't play exactly what you want and you say, stop there. I, I Just keep that. Well, that ain't what you hum to them if, if you say that. Right. So then do you stop and say, well, listen, you created that baseline, so I'm just going to go ahead and get you to publish it. Nobody right. does that. Yeah. So it's still some manipulation going through the in industry to this day. Right. And it's a lot of um, untrained things that continue to happen. Okay. So it's up to you to educate yourself. Correct. To know exactly. And this is what Mo is basically doing for us. Let, let, let me take it. For us that's willing to tell the truth, we've had our time and we still got some time. Right. But for us that's willing to tell the truth to you, we are educating you on what you should do before you try to put out a record. Understand what your publishing is. Right. Understand what your writers are. Right. This is what you get from this. Absolutely. You know, some people may see it as a diss, right. but I want you to get it from me that, as he said, in hindsight, in 2020, what would you want to tell somebody to help them further their career as of now? Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to pause. I, I just want to say, I'm, I'm going to give you your flowers now because you are someone that I looked up to as a DJ coming up. Because I was taller than you. Producer. <laughs> That's only because I was taller just, than you. Just your whole flavor and your whole style, your whole culture. Um, a lot of people say, you know, I grew up on Frankie, Ronnie. I knew about them. But you was the DJ that I looked up to was like, yeah, I, I, I'm digging this Farley guy. You know, I, I like what he's doing, the way you play, just the whole style that you brought to the game, brother. Um, Appreciate I give that. you credit for that. And I also give you credit for getting me into business because if it wasn't for you saying that you did my track back in the day and then Liddell was going to go in there and redo it for Larry Sherman, mm. I wouldn't have, I don't think it would have been totally different. What track you know, was that? I got a big member. Oh, I forgot all about yeah, that. Yeah, you, you was going around saying you made that and everything else. And, I did? Oh, yeah, absolutely you did. I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, you did. You took credit for I it. I got a... Yeah. That song? Yes, that song, yeah. Was I playing it? Yeah, she was playing it. Yes. You sure I didn't have one? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think Ryan <laughs> and Frankie probably knew about that. <laughs> that was good, yeah. All right, so one of your first remixes was John Rocker Move 
with Arthur Baker. Yes. How did that come about, and what was that like, Farley? Because nobody was doing it. Did at I that do time. the first remix? Who did the first remix oh, out of everybody? Well, Shout we'll go back on that, but go ahead and explain this one first. Okay, so I'm in New York City, and uh, I'm a great fan of Arthur Baker. I've been playing John Roker, all Arthur Baker. Any stuff stuff came out by Arthur Baker, we I think we played it, you know. Diana Ross remixes, some of everything that got got his hands on. So I met Arthur at the at the uh, at the uh conference right. in New York. And uh he had heard about me and he was like, Hey man, you know, I like what you're doing. And he didn't have to say that to me because I was like, I'm your fan, dude. <laughs> uh can I can you know, can we do some work together? He said, sure. Right. And so I went back to Chicago, I had gave him my number and he called me. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I'm jumping around the crib. You don't understand. This Arthur Baker calling right, me. Right, you right, know? right, right. Um, and so, um, and so at that time, you know, so so you can get an idea. So you you got Chef Pettibone, Arthur Baker, T. Scott, uh, all these legendary remixes. You know, right. Bruce Forrest. So Arthur Baker calls me. I'm going like, and John Roker? Are you kidding me? I can mm. remix that record. So we went out to New York. I got Danny Wilson to go out there with me. And um, we started, you know, messing around with the Fairlight. Now, nobody had, for us, no one had ever seen a Fairlight in Chicago. Right. And here we are messing around on a Fairlight, a, a machine that's a sample machine that can play notes and, and turn it into uh, music uh, and voices. And so we messed around with the Fairlight and all that. And um, so Arthur asked me, who do I want to play piano on the track? And that was the first time I had been to a studio where they have a, a whole folder of musicians. Right. Open up the thing, and he said, which musician you want? Now, this guy worked with this guy. This guy worked with Donna Ross. This guy did this. I said, man, give me that guy. And that dude, Fingers, was, man, he touched them ivories like I've never seen nobody touch ivories before. Wow. So then after that, um, there's a song, Will Downing Jr., um, they allowed me to remix the, the song he did called, uh, uh, what is that? It, he made the song called Chicago. Um, and it was incredible to work with these people that I had never worked with, being a, the most amazing studio that I had ever seen before in my life. And then I got this one other part I wanted to, to say that was really crazy, just as we speak about the industry. In comes the door, push the door open, slams the door open, is the soul sonic force. Come push the door open, and Africa Bimbada was cussing his ass off saying he wanted his royalties. Mm. Now, here we are in Chicago, fussing about we want our royalties in Chicago. Still doing the same in New York. And the same thing in New York, African Ben Bada kicks the door and go like, I ain't been paid for my, my royalties right. all this time. But that's the thing. We didn't kick in the door. That's the problem. I did. You did? I kicked Larry's door open and I uh, almost threw him down the stairs. That tracks records? Oh, yes, sir. Really? Oh, I got my money. Oh, okay, okay. Yes, sir. So, Farley, Ron Harley. I'm sorry, here we go. Farley. Ron Hardy is often credited by DJ Pierre as the first to embrace Acid House. What do you feel like your impact was on Acid House at that time? The first to embrace it. Um, you know, people often, uh, you know, give credit to, to people where sometimes it's doing and sometimes they don't. But Larry Sherman, who pressed the record up on tracks, gave the record to me and asked me to play it on the radio and that's why the record sold in the stores. Mm. 
the distinction that some DJs played records uh, and they broke the record where it sold a lot of copies. So you understand what breaking a record means. It means to play a record that didn't make it known to a lot of people. Right. Well, you can't outdo radio. And no matter how big your club is, you can never outdo radio. So what's the biggest club Frank played in? What's the biggest club Ron Hardy played in? You couldn't possibly break that record, that that record was all over the United States from these clubs. It came from radio. Because here's the thing. Uh, When you went away to college, you became a disciple of house music. Because when you left... You had cassettes that you got from BMX and GCI from all the mixes on the radio. Not even knowing to you when you went away to school, you wanted people to listen to your style of music. And your style of music was house music. And now you got people fragmenting all over the country that are hearing it. Because back then, we didn't have the internet. It wasn't no www dot and you you could hear us in Chicago. Those tapes became gold. And they made it all the way overseas, and that's why we're still talking about uh, England right now and me being a pioneer of house music in England because I am the very first person to be on the British charts, okay, in 1986. I am the first person in house music history, not Knuckles, not Hardy, not Marshall Jefferson. Farley's the first person to have a record on the British charts, and it went top 10. Mm. So... That opened it up for Hurley. That opened the door for everybody else who came after me. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So, Farley, let's go to 1993, 94 to 2000. What were you doing? Where were you at? What was going on? In 92. So, 90, let's go 92 to 2000, the early 2000. Yeah, because... it was a big break. Yeah. 92 was the... Um, yeah, my mom passed. And, uh, um, rest in peace. So, yeah, I hadn't even thought about it in a long time. It kind of got me there for a minute. And in this same year, um, the Ministry of Sound, which was the biggest club in England at mm-hmm. the time, the most, uh, incredible club sound wise, and all the big names were starting to go to England and play there in 92. And, uh, they asked me to come over. And, uh, I didn't want to leave my father. Uh, it was really rough on him. And of course, it would be rough on me with my mom. And I didn't want to leave him by himself. So I missed my flight. And uh, and so the rumor went around to all the agents, don't hire this guy, Farley Jack Master Funk, in England. Mm-hmm. So I'm not no longer on BMX. I'm still doing clubs throughout the United States or whatever. Uh, but then... I hit a, a a dry patch. I had to move in with, at the time, I was moving in with my mother and father because I wanted to be there with my mother. And not just that, because I was broke. Mm-hmm. I was broke. The truth. Uh, and so I moved in, and, and I've only did for a living music. Uh, you know, I'm not the guy you're going to see, you know, get no regular job. That <laughs> Everything I do has to do with music or... Oh, and then, you know, I got a lot of businesses, too, so I want you to know that, though. I mean, I, I wouldn't dare let myself get in that predicament again, but I have a ton of businesses now, so I'm fine. But at that time, I ran to a dry patch, and um, and it was really rough for me. So in 92 into 93, my dad loaned, loaned me $1,000. Okay. 
And I went to England. And uh, when I got there, Frankie was DJing there. Um, Jimmy Polo. Jimmy Polo. He yeah. was DJing. No, he was he was playing. He wasn't DJing. He was playing. Uh, and only a handful of people from Chicago were there. Okay. And so at the time I got there, the rumor was so bad about me missing that big good a big gig at the Ministry of Sound, and that's the biggest club, and all the agents deal with it. Till um, I had to actually go over there, and they paid me two hundred and fifty pounds, which was about mm, maybe three hundred and seventy five dollars a gig. Hmm. I had to build my reputation back up again because. Boy, when you cross the Ministry of Sound, you get blacklisted. And you was living out there too, though. Yes, I was living there, man. And it was rough because I wasn't making a whole lot of money. I was sleeping on this chick's couch, and Jimmy Polo was stroking the chick. <laughs> and uh, Jimmy had to say, hey, come over here far you can stay here. Uh, these are real stories. So, so I moved over there, and it took me a year and a half, and I got my fee up to 2,000 pounds a gig, and that's 3,000, was 3,000 U.S. at the time. And then I kept working back and forth, and then I got it back up to about eight to ten thousand. So then I would travel back and forth almost every week. I would travel back and forth from Chicago to England to see my kids, mm-hmm. and um, it, it, it was a rough time. But then you know, God being who He is, He restored me. Oh, great man, great to hear. So Chicago is known for its myth and beef. Yes. What Chicago-based beef or myth do you want to squash or correct? Past or present? Ooh, I've already talked about them already. Okay. In fact, uh, in fact, but there was a second guy whose record that I, uh, I'm trying to think. His name is Steve, not Hurley. His name is Steve. I had a thing for Steve's, I guess. Um, <laughs> Poindexter. Oh no, um, it wasn't worked that motherfucker. Because um, it was House Nation and Jack My Body. See now, oh, that's what it was. So, so it was House Nation belonged to Steve, and and the other one, Jack, my body was uh, what's his name, Nick Nonstop. Nick Nonstop right? So those are the two songs that I had uh, uh, made remakes of. Um, <laughs> that's what you're gonna call it, remakes. yeah, yeah, remakes. Oh, uh, just what, say what it is, man. Well, no, it's what, what it was. It right. was, it was you remakes. stole those records, and that's what it was. That's, that's I it. sold my remakes. I mean, <laughs> come on, that, that's exactly what I did. But I mean, I've already said I was sorry already, but you know, but I'm just saying, you know, that's that's what they were, you know. Uh, because f- first of all, uh, I couldn't have put out their songs because that would be their records. I everything on there wasn't no sampling, it all got played. Over, but if you listen to House Nation, House Nation, the only thing that is taken from House Nation is the word House Nation. It, it's not my baseline, my strings, nothing that was in that song is in it other than the word right. House Nation. And so when you listen to Jack My Body, you won't hear nothing but the word Jack My Body. And other than that, other music, same thing. So that's why I say to you, <laughs> I say to you today, my friends. All right, so far at least our last question, man. Okay. Name one Chicago house record you wish you would have done based strictly on the creative, not the sales, but a Chicago record that you would be like, I wish I would have made that one. You know, I have a lot of problem with, with that, but the top of the hill for me, and, and it's going to sound so tripped out, but that record called Time that he did with uh, 
Daje. Mm. I know every tick in that song, every <laughs> beat in that song. I be driving in the car mimicking her singing the song. Mm. She had sang that song live, and I walked right in front of the stage while she was singing it like a fan and sang that song with her. And she looking at me like, you know that record that well? I know that record. So I love that record, Ty. Right. It's an amazing song. What a great production on, on that song. They have been, oh, oh, oh. And I would be remiss if I didn't say this. Now, I have another one to add to that on the remix. Uh. Liddell Townsend, because I, I love this because it feels like Todd Terry. Uh, Liddell Townsend got the uh, mm-hmm, yeah yeah record. Yeah, no no. But it's the um the doom 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 doom. You don't remember the, the hula mix? It was the, the classic hula mix. It, it dude, it's like it's dark. Right. It's crazy. Yeah yeah yeah. It beats hard. And when that came out, dude, I, I never forget when that record came out. I, I love Liddell on the lead of that song. Right. But but boy, that that the, the, instrumental. Yeah, the mix of it, yeah. You know, cause there's some rendition of songs like Another Sleepless Night that that uh Sean Christopher sang on for Mike Hitman Mike, Mike, Wilson. Mike Wilson. Yeah. But Todd Terry did a mix just like this record I'm talking about with what hula them did and right. fingers. Right. And man, them them suckers <laughs> get me hyped. That's what I work out to right there. I love them songs, man. Right. Absolutely. So far, like, like once again, brother, I am honored. I, I no, appreciate I'm honored. You Thank you for, for asking this, man. me, brother. This is this is a this is just this is impactful for me, man, because this is something where I had to get the king of house on here to make sure that this was legit and so people know your story about house music. From you and from your voice, and not from anybody else. I appreciate that, man. And um, coming from someone like yourself, Grammy Award winner, street sign named after you, uh, influencer in industry, it it means a lot. We don't have uh, a bunch of Grammy Award winners from Chicago. We have a lot that's been nominated, and I'm so proud of Terry Hunter. Yes, sir. Um, I'm I'm proud of Steve Silk Hurley. Yes, sir. Uh, Hula. Felix the house cat, yes. Felix sir. the house cat, he's yeah. smooth. Um, and and I'm I'm really in right now. I, I want to say that I'm really enjoying Terry in a different way. Terry Hunter, that is. Yes. The reason why I'm enjoying Terry Hunter right now is because Terry has come, so to speak, out of the closet on his swag. Okay. He is owning his shit now, where he knows he's the shit. I had. I've been looking at the video. Like, I didn't make it to the thing that y'all just did recently. That right, you, the you, self-love release, yes. Yeah, I wish I would have made it there. But I'm really enjoying watching him take take it to another level right now. Right. There's not many that, that's going where he's going right now. And I'm also proud of 10 City with uh, Byron right. and, um, and Marshall and Jefferson Marshall. Uh, yeah. and what they've been able to do. So, Chicago, we ain't finished Rest of the world, we ain't finished. We gonna you you the utilize. What edit? Okay. We are going to bring unity together at some point where more people will work together with each other. But I am proud of those people who I just mentioned, and I hope that uh, they keep house music going. Great job, guy. Follow. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Great job, guys. Great job.
All right. That being said, Farley, I love you, brother. I love you too, bro. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Uh, anything you got coming up you want to put out there right now? <sighs> well, I got the house music truck, the only one in the world. Now, what's now? So people know mm-hmm. what is the house music truck? Well, if you see a food truck, okay, my truck is huge. It's a twenty-six footer. It is equipped with sound system inside and a sound system that comes on the outside of the truck. At the same time, I have marketing screens, LEDs on both sides of the truck. Uh, Mo is going to flash you a picture, a little video yes, of it. All right here, look right here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and also, I've just added the other element of creating the party bus in the inside. Also, I have the world's biggest mural of a house music icon, look okay, right that was given that. to me, uh, as you see right here. Uh, it's the biggest uh, house music mural in the world. Um, and so I got a lot of stuff that I'm doing, uh, including the House Music Museum and Hall of Fame that is that is slated to open in 2025. Um, it's just a lot that God has placed in my bosom, and I'm enjoying the ride right now. Oh, that's good. So remember to click the like, subscribe, hit the notification button. And this has been Farley, Jackmaster Funk, everybody. Thank you so much, Farley. Thank you, bro.